you stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Lennon, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. No. Okay, look, we've discussed this. Spelljammer's mere existence is not enough reason for you to go on strike. And while I disagree with you there, that's not the issue. The other host is missing. Oh. Uh, Ryu flew again? Quite. Hmm. Okay. So, why don't we have a version of her here with the sulfurous perfume? Uh, apparently HR has the day off. It's World Alzheimer's Day. Really? It's taking a day off for that? It's a creature that feeds on memories. Figure it out. Fine. 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 Nobody else could fill in? Well, apparently Mikey had a funeral to go to, Ray Ray had some sort of nature event that she wouldn't talk about, and I can't get a lock on Tony for a teleport. What's that about? I don't know. Every time I try, I just end up passed out on the floor, and then I wake up and there's a printout on Rostro that says, Version mismatch. Please update installation. I figured the passing out can't be healthy. Hasn't been an issue so far. Anyway, I was going to figure something else out, but then I realized, do we have any news to talk about? Ugh. Like, actually, no. Apparently Wizard's reaction to the mess with the Hadozi was to just hunker down and hide in their tower, so yeah, there's really not a lot going on. So, since I don't see you scraping caked mud and grass off your legs, what have you been up to? Ah, well, Bloodlake told me that he's interested in trying his hand at DMing, so I'm putting together a kind of, like, starter kit for him. Oh, okay, what do you have? Well, okay, let's see, we got, well, a DM screen, uh, D&D Beyond Access, a notebook... Is that a computer notebook or a paper one? Yeah, I wasn't sure what he preferred, so I got both. Uh, okay, let's see. Two sets of dice, two more sets of dice, a fifth set of dice? I think Ryu may have gotten into your notes. Yeah, I'm beginning to think that myself. What's that recording sphere there? Oh, so I was going to record a bunch of tips and tricks that he can review in his own time to sort of, you know, help him out when he's starting. Okay. So you know we have this whole archive down in the audio cave titled Wisdom from the Masters? Yeah? And you didn't want to grab some of those that are already made. Why? Well, I mean, there's a whole lot of them down there and it would take so long to just listen to them. Except we aren't recording a show, so hey, free time. Okay, but how are we going to sort through them all? Ostrom? Please state the nature of the mathematical inquiry. How? I'm in the main room. How is your voice coming through so clearly? The acoustic arrangement of the structure maintains much of the amplitude of given sounds if the waves are appropriately directed. I mean, I've got to be honest, I find myself impressed, horrified, and honestly excited all at the same time. Reminds me of the drow sorority mixer I went to. Please state the nature. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, we need some archived recordings that help out new Dungeon Masters. I assume you have them all, like, catalogued or something? Obviously. It would seem logical to begin with this segment. No, I'm not doing it. Look, we all understand you're having issues with the transition, but the reality is that your new condition changes things. Yeah, see, I don't feel like it does. 
and I don't want people acting like it does, if it's all the same with you. Fine, fine, we'll work around it, I guess. Hey, Ostron. Yes? I have a problem with your plan. Uh, get in line. Sorry? Ah, uh, yes, what is it? You want me to, and I'm quoting here, catch the guard captain's interest socially and ply him for information whilst using feminine wiles. Yes? I'm not really comfortable with what you're implying here. You've done that sort of thing before. Because it was legitimately necessary, I'm a rogue. They're the captain of the guard for an actual Lich King. What's wrong with torture? I'm assuming that's a rhetorical question? I actually kind of prefer when we don't torture people. I mean, you know, fair trial, innocent until proven guilty, that sort of thing. Oh, but because I'm dressed in form-fitting clothing for stealth, I have to go talk to the male guards whenever we need them distracted, and that's just the way we do things? Okay, okay, let's take a breath. Ryu, put the knife back. What knife? I saw your hand move, so either you've got very itchy hips or you're drawing a weapon, and I know where my money is. You sure about that? I... Okay, look, not the point right now. Ostron, I think you needed to do some content surveys before you drew this plan up. Some what now? Oh, they're a really good idea. Most people agree and are on board with the idea of doing a session zero before a campaign begins. We've covered the idea of a session zero and the topics that should be covered in the past. Character creation, party makeup, backstory sharing, and setting information along with going over whatever house rules will be in place, and if any subclasses or other mechanics are being excluded. However, another aspect of Session Zero discussions that should be included, particularly if the group you're playing with includes new members or is a completely new one with people who you've never played before. There are a bunch of different names for it, but common titles include Topics Checklist, Comfort List, and Trigger List. D&D is a role-playing game, and even if you play games primarily concerned with finding bad monsters and killing them, everyone is taking on the role of an actual person. With video games, what the characters can or can't do is limited by what was programmed into the game from the beginning. With a live role-playing game, there are very few limits. That is an asset to the games, but it can also present problems. There are many aspects of what characters can do that delve into problematic areas of life. It's very much worth having a discussion of what portions of life people are comfortable dealing with. Let's take a mundane example. Romance. Again, to borrow from video games, you can start with the most basic question. Are characters allowed to romantically pursue other characters? For a lot of people, this seems like a fairly simple question, or maybe even one that doesn't matter. But if you poll a cross-section of D&D players, you'll probably get a variety of different answers. Some people want to allow for the cliché of the bard trying to seduce anything that breathes, and maybe some things that don't, but other people aren't comfortable dealing with romantic plots. That could be for a number of different reasons. Maybe they just think romance subplots put the focus on one character too much, or there could be a legitimately traumatic issue. They don't have to share that, and the players don't have to know specifically, but it's definitely worth finding out if someone has an issue with romance being included before it comes up in the game. That way the DM will know not to include it in the campaign, and the bard will maybe not try to seduce the knoll. At this point, some people are probably already figuring out that the conversation can go way deeper than that. Let's say that everybody's fine with romance, but that brings up other issues of who and how far. Are players allowed to romance each other's characters or only the NPCs? And how detailed are these romantic activities getting? Is it just, yes you succeed on a persuasion check and they're in love with you now? 
or do people want to make it a process? And does that process involve anything physical? Is that a die roll, or is someone pulling out Fifty Shades of Grey and reading a few select passages? Again, some people are probably going, why would you ever think of including that kind of thing in a D&D game? But at the same time, some others are probably thinking, whatever, if they're having fun with it, great. And of course, there are people that are going, please, 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 please never make me deal with that in a D&D game ever again. None of these reactions are incorrect and not in the spirit of the game, but it is vitally important that people find that out before the game starts, for everybody's sake. Romance is an easy topic to pick on, but there are a lot of others. It may seem silly to ask about violence in a game where combat is a major pillar of play, but there are a lot of articles and recommendations about making combat more exciting with elaborate descriptions. However, you have to consider, do people want detailed descriptions of what happens when a body is engulfed in a fireball or a sword slices through someone's arm? Because there are probably people who would feel a lot more comfortable keeping it at the level of, you hit, roll damage. Horror is another aspect that should be reviewed as well. One of the ways a lot of adventure modules convey a sense of the evil characters are fighting and the threat of the antagonists is to present them with a horrific tableau. In Descent into Avernus, the characters can come upon a hill with bodies impaled on trees. Going through the Tomb of Annihilation, characters can find a grotesque corpse-like figure surrounded by disembodied hands crawling around like spiders. Dungeon of the Mad Mage has things from, well, you know. Okay, Ostron's issues with Spelljammer aside. To some, it might seem silly to question horror being present in a campaign focused on a vampire or a lich's tomb, but again, it's a matter of degree. Some people might be okay with paragraphs describing blood dripping down the walls and detailed examinations of exactly how rotten the zombie's body is, but others will be a lot more comfortable if it's just stated that there's a zombie and leave everyone to fill in their own mental image. Making people mildly uncomfortable with a horrific setting can be good role-playing. Triggering a panic attack or a gag reaction is pushing it too far. So it's worth figuring out how much gore people are comfortable with rather than scrambling for a bucket in the middle of a game session. Another thing that should almost certainly be discussed is children. Kids can trigger a wide variety of actions from people for a number of different reasons. And for better or worse, they're a very common storytelling tool. Suddenly being put in charge of a child is a trope used in horror, comedy, and romantic storylines everywhere. Hurting children is a go-to signal that someone is or should be considered evil. But again, you can end up with wildly different reactions. Some people are going to be very disengaged or even uncomfortable with the idea of interacting with a child at all, even in a roleplay setting. And the strength of the reaction you get from some people, particularly actual parents, if you start putting dead children in a campaign, should not be brushed aside. It's definitely not something you want to be surprised by. Now, of course, a lot of these are sensitive topics, and the reasons people might be sensitive about them are often very personal themselves. Someone might be uncomfortable with the idea of a romance plot in a story just because they don't like them, or it could be because they have a trauma associated with it that they don't want to share with anyone. For that reason, in most cases, things like this shouldn't be topics for open discussion, at least not at the start. What a lot of people do to deal with this is they set up anonymous surveys. There are a number of online tools such as SurveyMonkey that allow a survey to be created and distributed online where anonymous responses can be collected. There's also a number of resources online that can provide templates for crafting such a survey to make sure that you don't miss anything critical. And keep in mind the phrase, I don't want this in the game and I don't want to talk about why, is absolutely a valid response option 
for every one of the questions and it should be completely respected if you want your game to be friendly and inclusive to all. Hopefully, after sorting that out, everyone at the table can look forward to a fun, engaging campaign without worrying about random stress triggers popping up out of nowhere, other than rolling natural ones, of course. Alright, yes, sorry, I should have pulled the group before coming up with the plans. That's on me. Thank you. Now, if it's okay with you, I'm gonna go get my armor ready. Wait, you're- what? He does know he's an Archfey Warlock now, right? You just yelled at me about making people uncomfortable with assumptions. Okay, you were making me seduce someone. That's a personal thing. Putting an Archfey Warlock in the front line isn't a psychological trigger, it's tactical stupidity. Fine, then you go talk to him. Okay, granted, that's a good start. Definitely want to avoid issues like that. What about the actual game, though? They're going to need some help with getting things started and getting people excited about playing. Consider this selection. No, that's still not right. Close, but it doesn't quite capture the essence of Asmodeus is trying to destroy the world, you know? Mikey? Is that you? What are you two cooking up this time? Oh, hi. Um, I'm working with Mikey to try and find the exact sound that describes my campaign. And once again, your grasp of the English language amazes me. We're talking about the emotional tone of the game, not the way it sounds. Although, I mean, music can help with that. But, uh, fine. So, what did you two want to talk about? Discussing with the table what the tone for the game is is a very important topic. Players may have a number of different expectations. Some could expect a very serious, no metagaming, roleplay game experience, while others are expecting something more jovial, metagaming like crazy, and cracking wise at every situation. Others may want to emulate the atmosphere they saw in Acquisitions Incorporated or Critical Role. Keeping players engaged and coming back to your games means understanding and accommodating those expectations and realizing where they're appropriate. In general, D&D games can have tones that fall along a spectrum, from serious to casual. Serious tones generally involve a heavy amount of roleplay, high-stakes goals and quests, and very little discussion of the game as a game, usually only in terms of combat tactics and rules clarifications. Any humour or joking is usually going to be infrequent and come from one or two designated comic relief sources. In terms of popular media, this would be a campaign in the vein of Lord of the Rings or even Game of Thrones. Serious styles are generally going to be appropriate for most of the official published adventures. The party's goal, after all, is usually to vanquish the great evil that's threatening the land, so clearly a party of jokesters and pranksters would seem grossly out of place. By encouraging the party to keep everything serious, it can allow for some very intense yet very satisfying role-playing experiences. This tone is especially appropriate if you're wanting to have your campaign or adventure in a more mature setting or a more dangerous environment, such as Descent into Avernus, Curse of Strahd, or Out of the Abyss. The darker content and grim settings often leave little time for levity, though the occasional moment will naturally appear. Regardless of whether it's an official module or something you've created yourself, if you're intending to maintain a fully dark theme, it should go without saying, but talk to your players first. Seriously, campaigns that are very heavy, mature, and or dark can cause some players to personally struggle with themes and events. And even if everyone around the table has been friends for years, nobody really knows exactly what everyone around the table has gone through. With that in mind, even if everyone's on board and the boundaries of what's appropriate and what's not have been clearly drawn, always give the people around the table the option of an out if an action or scene wanders too close to the line. 
As a DM, there are various ways to accomplish this if a player is uncomfortable. Fading to black or simply cutting away to another part of the action are completely valid options, even if it wouldn't necessarily make narrative sense at the time. Remember, you're all there, first and foremost, to have fun. And as any DM will tell you, players don't need an excuse to derail any story, so should things start straying into uncomfortable territory, just do what you all do best and make the story in a completely different direction. The comic relief element we mentioned earlier can help with that. If one of the player characters seems to take on that role, that's fine, though it helps if the player in charge of them has a good sense of when the humor is appreciated and appropriate. Aside from being provided by the players, the campaign should have moments of light and respite built in. Wizards did this with Descent into Avernus, where despite the campaign trudging through hell most of the time, there are some absurd and amusing asides. Even though it may seem out of place, a source of humor is good to have. Even players who are comfortable with or enjoy the more serious tone can get worn down by unrelenting dark content. So, enough about the dark content. On the other end of the spectrum, jovial, joke-filled campaigns can seem almost silly, with a large number of role-playing encounters coming straight out of cartoons. Filled to the brim with ridiculous dialogue, party shenanigans, outlandish character stories, and other goofiness, these light-hearted campaigns can almost become satires of the genre. Take for example the fan movie The Gamers, or to a lesser extent Acquisitions Incorporated. Both of these are perfect examples of lighter-toned games. These kinds of games are often good for introducing new players who may be apprehensive about D&D. After all, it does still have a bit of a negative stereotype in some circles, and others may be concerned about sitting around a table with people who never acknowledge D&D as a game and will snap at anyone who's speaking out of character. Laughter and joking quickly diffuse the situation, and a more casual atmosphere is often more welcoming for the newer player. Seasoned players can also enjoy a lighter campaign as a break or an interlude if they just got done with a more serious or darker campaign, and need or want a way to keep playing but not have to deal with the same level of intensity. Published adventures like Acquisitions Incorporated and Rick and Morty are excellent for starting out on a lighter note, while many homebrewed campaigns can also adapt to a rather silly party very easily. Now some people assume casual, lighter games abandon role-playing altogether and metagaming is the norm, but that doesn't have to be true. The Acquisitions Incorporated groups stay in character for the vast majority of their campaigns and have full role-play experiences. The characters in question are just more off the wall than a party based on something from Tolkien, for example. So the idea that a lighter tone means it's a beginner's game or nobody is taking it seriously is just incorrect, and you may be depriving yourself of a great RPG opportunity. Another thing to remember is that the tone doesn't actually have to be static, unchanging, and constant. If you look at any long-running TV show with a particular tone, you'll usually find an episode or two where it was a dramatic shift. Sci-Fi's Battlestar Galactica, for example, was a rather grim and intense show, but they did have one episode that was practically a romantic comedy. And going back to how dark campaigns need moments of light, don't be afraid to take a light-hearted campaign and give it the odd moment of seriousness. Whilst the TV show Firefly and its accompanying movie Sur Serenity were generally light-hearted, they definitely took on more serious tones when a real issue was presented. I am a leaf on the wind. For your campaign, it's important to read the room and see what the players are thinking and feeling about the game. If people seem to be dreading or avoiding progressing through a dark, intense environment, injecting some humor or light-hearted moments might be warranted. If joking and casual play is starting to annoy people, it might be time to take up the stakes and increase people's focus. And obviously, if the players tell you when something's not to their liking, pay attention and fix it. Setting the correct tone can help you and your players more fully enjoy the game. And you know, I still don't think it's stupid trying to find an exact sound to represent a campaign. 
Judging by the not accepting request from Lennon sign that just appeared on the hatch to the cave, I don't think Mikey agrees with you. <laughs> yeah, he's not responding on the sending stone either. Alright, I think we got something going here. Now, we need something to help if the players are fighting with the DM. Oh, come on, it's only a small horde. Of gnolls! Katie, they're new! Goblins are a problem for them. Throwing someone in the deep end so they can learn to swim builds character, dear. No. No, in this case, it kills characters. All of them. It still creeps me the heck out when you do that. Well, fear not, blimey. I'm done here. Ryu simply refuses to listen to my suggestions. And I'm okay with that, I think. Uh, Suggestions about what? Uh, what kind of combat to run for new players. You asked the KDM for help with that? I didn't ask so much as she volunteered, but I knew it was a bad idea. While character creation and leveling up can have a host of mechanics and terms that confuse new players, when it comes to actually playing the game, combat is probably the most complex experience they have to deal with. Most of that is because the usual freedom players enjoy when controlling their characters gets very limited as soon as combat encounters start. The basic concepts of combat are fairly straightforward, so you probably don't have to worry about trying to leave out any of those rules, but don't try to start new players on fancy initiative systems, whatever you do. Bonus actions can get confusing though because of the sometimes you have them, sometimes you don't nature of how they work, so you may need to pay a little more attention there. Determining what to do on their turn isn't going to confuse a lot of people, but determining what to do with their character may be more of a challenge. If players have a specific idea for a character in mind, you should probably work with whatever it is, but if the new players are open to recommendations, it would probably be easier for everyone if you steered them towards simpler classes like fighter, ranger, barbarian, or even rogue. If a new player absolutely needs to play Gandalf or Harry Potter, it might be worth having a conversation with them during the Session Zero meeting. Go over how the magic system in D&D works and see if they get it or they're having trouble comprehending. Make no mistake, the D&D magic system is atypical. A point-by system or simple list of how often certain abilities or spells can be used is far more common in gaming in general. In fact, if your spellcasting players are having a lot of trouble with the default system, it may be worth using the spell points variant method of casting on page 288 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Beyond recommending simpler classes, it may be worth steering players towards classes whose mechanics you or other experienced players at the table are familiar with. When the players get into combat, there are bound to be a whole host of questions from them about both the combat mechanics in general and the capabilities of their character in particular. If you have the player look the ability up during combat, it will help them learn, but it will also slow your game down. You have to figure out how much of a delay you want to deal with. The first couple of combats new players are involved with should probably involve single monsters or very few enemies that will stick around long enough for the players to all get a turn, but don't have a real risk of killing them. It may be worth fudging some dice to allow for that if necessary, just for the purposes of learning. If you don't want to fudge dice, consider running a few combat encounters as tutorials or separate from the main campaign, where deaths and other catastrophic outcomes won't be permanent. Most players won't appreciate it if the first time they discover the wild magic sorcerer can spontaneously cast fireball is during their first combat encounter where everyone has less than 15 hit points. Whether in tutorial form or naturally as a result of progression in the campaign, it will help to introduce the players to how the flow of combat changes depending on the enemies. Make sure they encounter a large beast, a group of melee creatures, a group of ranged creatures, and then a mix. 
Also, while TPKing the whole party is not usually helpful, allowing negative consequences for unwise decisions or bad tactics can be instructive. If the Barbarian is all gung-ho about their ability to charge forward and do damage, but they leave the more vulnerable characters open to being flanked, that's something they need to experience. If you want to go the extra mile and you plan on continuing the trend in your campaigns, you can expand the experience further into the differences between intelligent and bestial enemies. An owlbear, for example, is probably just going to fight until it or its opponent is dead, but a dragon is capable of reason and thought, so not only will it retreat if it's losing, it won't necessarily focus on the closest or the loudest target if it thinks one of the others is more dangerous. An important thing for the characters to discover in combat are the roles of their classes. This is where a consequenceless fight might be helpful, particularly for players with characters that are less defined, like bards or clerics. The bards will need to figure out that while they have the ability to hit up close if they need to, they shouldn't stay on the front line. Similarly, clerics will need to discover that their classes are capable of doing more than staying in the back and healing. In this case, don't be afraid to point out the different ways the classes can operate, even if other players aren't encouraging it. Some people are loath to have the clerk use spell slots for anything besides healing, but they can and should be able to operate offensively in combat. House rules for combat are another thing that needs to be addressed early. There are different schools of thought on house rules with new players, and some people believe that new players should be run through at least a few unmodified combats before any house rules are introduced so they're familiar with how the game plays. Others think that starting out with the house rules is fine, as long as it's made clear that they are deviations from how the game is usually played. Regardless of your approach, when you start using house rules with new players, make sure you explain how they work in detail. If the rule is one of the optional rules and it's available in an official source like the Dungeon Master's Guide or Xanathar's Guide, let them know where they can find it. If it's one that you've completely made up, point out what part of the rules are being changed, and also describe why you're implementing the rule. People can sometimes be nervous if changes are being made to the game without any explanation. It'll probably take a few different combat encounters before new players really get comfortable with the flow, and even longer before they start branching out and trying new things with their characters, but supporting them and giving them room to experiment will certainly help. And in case it wasn't particularly clear, Pack of Gnolls are not an experiment, other than how fast can you TPK? I know that. Tell Katie. Okay, not exactly what I was thinking, but you know what? It works. Let's run with it. Um... What's next? The majority of adventures present in such games necessitate the creation and maintenance of a primary antagonist. Right, and Ryu's at six, so she probably can't wear the hat. What have you got for me? Okay, so I don't think Asrag needs gold. His house is already pretty impressive. Hey, what you doing? Oh, uh, don't, don't worry. I don't think you'll be able to help me. Well, I'm still not opening a portal to the Nine Hells for you, so you may as well see what she's got to offer. Um, standing right here, guys. Fine, fine. So, Ryu, I'm trying to figure out how to DM and roleplay the big bad for my campaign. They're supposed to be super intelligent, and I'm... not quite. Are you trying to say that I'm too dumb to help you? No, but I mean, if you need to DM an evil person, you just put on the hat, and then you stop worrying about it. Hey now... As much as I love her, Katie sometimes is less gentle with people than I'd prefer. I have to DM evil masterminds just as much as you do. But you have no problems with it. Oh no, I run into issues all the time. One of the challenges of being a DM is similar to one that players can face with their characters. 
Someone who's objectively not strong may be role-playing a barbarian that can rip trees out of the ground, but they don't have to do that in person. On the other hand, a shy person playing an outgoing, friendly priest who comforts people all the time, or a person with no sense of humor playing a witty rogue, often feel pressure to actually roleplay those aspects of their characters at the table, and that can be a challenge. We'll take this opportunity to remind everyone that's not the way it's supposed to work. If someone is roleplaying a master orator and they want to try to give a speech, that's great, but the only thing that should matter for gameplay purposes is the die roll on their persuasion or performance. If they got a 20 plus on their score, it shouldn't matter if they can actually give a motivational speech. Likewise, everyone should be roleplaying like that rogue is the group's personal Robin Williams, even if the player themselves can't tell a joke. However, the DM arguably has a tougher challenge when it comes to evil masterminds. The same leeway should be given to the DM around speeches and so on, but that's not the major problem. The mastermind is supposed to be able to outsmart and anticipate the heroes a lot of the time, certainly at least as long as the story needs them to. However, in reality the DM is one person and their ideas working against the minds of anywhere from three to six people, some of whom may actually be more clever or intelligent than the DM. That's unless you actually have a genius level evil psychopath for a DM, in which case it's very likely the quality of your D&D game should probably not be the first thing that you're worried about. Assuming the DM is an average individual just trying to run the game, they are faced with the challenge of having to come up with genius level plans and countermeasures without the benefit of having the associated intelligence. So how are they supposed to deal with it? Fortunately for DMs, there are ways to get around that, but be warned it does involve either extra preparation on your part or a lot of really clever improvisation. Usually both. As far as preparation goes, the easiest way to conceive an evil plan's details if you can't think of them yourself is theft. I mean, it's an evil plan, you may as well start with deviant behavior out of the gate. Using ideas from other people is a tried and true trick for DMs everywhere, but with large evil figures, sometimes you need to take it to the next level. Steal traps and dungeons and ambush scenarios from D&D resources, sure, but also be willing to steal larger plans and ideas. If you want medieval family intrigue, there are numerous epic fantasy stories with plots around angry illegitimate children, conniving step and half-siblings, or just rival members of the same family. If you need a conquering or takeover plot and don't want to go the route of, they just have thousands and thousands of troops, look at figures like Saruman or even Palpatine from Star Wars. It requires looking into the plotting and some of the backstory more than with a casual read-through, but both of them worked fairly subtly for years and played different factions against one another before finally coming out as full evil masterminds. If you can't think of any good fictional sources for whatever plot you want to run, or if you're worried you won't be able to disguise it enough that your players won't recognize it immediately, crack open a history book. Takeovers, betrayals, coups, and complex plotting, evil and otherwise, have literally been going on for millennia. If you need inspiration for how a conniving mastermind would get themselves in power, you can start with things like the history of the Caesars in Rome, the Tudors or the Medici families in Europe, the communist revolutions in China or Russia, or the shogunate period in Japan, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. You can even look into non-political things like the mobsters of the 1920s, the robber barons of the Industrial Revolution, or activities of groups like the Yakuza. Even though they aren't concerned with political power per se, they still used underhanded methods to get themselves some kind of power. One cautionary note there, however, if you're looking at real history, it's usually best to start at least 100 years ago or more and work backwards for inspiration. 
Descriptions of history more recent than that can still be tainted by emotional interpretations based on modern politics, and may have things omitted or glossed over for various reasons. In the United States, for example, depending on what sources you look at, you're still going to get wildly different descriptions of the motivations for the American Civil War. But let's say you found your inspiration for the evil plan, you've got your evil plan all worked out, the pieces are in place, blackmail and extortion is in process, your villain is on their way to dominance. Enter the heroes. Now, you have a decision to make, and that will inform what you need to prepare for. Are the heroes going to be aware of the villain's involvement, or not? If this is a Sauron or Strad situation where everyone knows who the villain is and where they are and the whole point is just to get to them, then you don't need to worry about most of the rest of this. However, if you're doing either a recurring villain scenario or a grand betrayal situation, you have more work to do. We'll start with the grand betrayal. This is where the heroes will run into the villain multiple times without knowing that they are actually the villain. Palpatine from the prequel Star Wars media is a prime example of this. What you need to prep for in this case is the ways the villain can be running things and setting themselves up for power, but they are not obvious about it. Some of your research into the larger plot may help you figure out ways your villain could hide their involvement, be it a false persona or secret proxy agents or whatever. The key is that they shouldn't publicly be involved. The benefit to this approach is you don't have to come up with how they're running their evil scheme right away. The heroes will start by dealing with the obvious issues and low-level brutes carrying out menial tasks. It's only once they get into it they'll start looking for the mastermind. However, you do have to figure out how they're involved eventually because the heroes will need to start finding clues that point back to the schemer. On the other hand, you can go with the recurring villain approach. In that scenario, the villain may be hidden for a little while, but their identity will be revealed relatively quickly. At that point, you have the next challenge, keeping your villain alive. Getting into combat with the heroes is a quick way for someone to die. Either the evil mastermind will die because the heroes are annoyingly efficient at killing any single target when they put their mind to it, or one of the characters is going to die because the villain is a high enough level to shrug off the hero's attacks, which means their own attacks are going to level the competition. The answer to that is escape routes and traps. James Bond villains, for example, almost always encounter the titular hero a few times before any sort of final confrontation takes place, and they always end up trapping Bond in some sort of dire situation or sending a wave of minions to tie him up and stall pursuit. Eventually, regardless of how your villain started, you'll need to figure out how they're going to escape confrontation with the heroes. Fortunately, there are a lot of options in most D&D games. Teleport is a wonderful spell, for example, but what do you do if someone has a counterspell? Or what if they beat the initiative and manage to hold person them before any casting or movement can occur? So where an evil mastermind would need to think up counters on the fly, you as the DM have the advantage of omniscience. You know what all the heroes are capable of doing, so you can prepare counters for them in advance. Having two or so counters for each character's signature moves is probably good enough to give your villain time to escape. And you don't have to worry about burning legendary saves or similar one-off solutions because the guy isn't in the fight for the long haul. Those are some specific examples that can help, but in general, the best way to improve your villain's intelligence is the way that they do it with computer networks. Just get more nodes involved. Find a Discord group, such as the one that Heroes Rise has, for example, maybe. Talk to D&D players from your friendly local gaming store, or even post on Reddit if you're desperate, and just crowdsource the solution. 
Put up the general scenario or the specifics if you have them and ask people to punch holes in the plan and find obvious weaknesses that you may be blind to but the villain would have anticipated. You're trying to imitate someone who has vastly more intelligence than you do as a single individual, so don't feel guilty or inadequate if you need more minds to solve the problem. Which is great if you plan in advance, but what if something goes wrong in the moment and the players have a burst of creative imagination that just shortcuts all of your ideas? In some cases, maybe just let them have it. Just let the villain get their comeuppance early and promote someone else to fill the spot. Or make them not actually the villain. However, if you really want to keep that specific person alive, the best thing you can do is to simply fake it and retcon. Get them out of there and then think of a reason that they were able to vanish later. Again, you can crowdsource the solution after the fact as well, but another thing that a lot of DMs have taken advantage of is having their players give them the answer. The players are bound to speculate about how the villain got away, so if you're really strapped for ideas, just listen to their theories and then pick whichever one you like best. As we mentioned when this first started, all of this involves work. Looking up information and crowdsourcing solutions aren't usually things that can be accomplished with a Sly Flourish 20 minute prep session. And if you want the villain to be both intelligent and believable, it's worth it to put in the time so they can seem to have the smarts and anticipation they're supposed to. One final thing to remember in this whole endeavor is that you aren't trying to beat the players. You want to create a repeating, believable villain with above average intelligence, but ultimately the idea is that the players should be able to win. Make sure to leave them a way to do that. At first, when you need the villain to survive, you should be closing off all the loopholes, but later on you want to make sure you give the players a path to victory. Hopefully if you do that, the players will end up greatly satisfied at finally taking down the villain that's been outsmarting them the whole time. Okay, well that definitely gives me some better ideas. That is the point, isn't it? Mm. So, wait, the killer DM really isn't helpful with these kind of things, Ryu? Uh, I mean, okay, don't tell her I said this. But Katie isn't really a whole lot smarter than me. She just has more stuff. I mean, when she finds out someone smarter than she is, she just, you know, kills them. I mean, that doesn't make sense because she kills Ostron all the time, but she never barely... Hang on. The, the killer DM is not smarter than me. Okay, I think that should do it, uh, don't you? My observations suggest multiple sapient beings lack the wherewithal to maintain consistent patterns of planning in advance of events. This should be mitigated. I have no idea what you just said, but things are going well so far, so hit me. I thought you said this wasn't ever going to happen. Yeah, I did, but then he taught me some stuff about Thieves' Cant, and here we are. I thought you already knew Thieves' Cant. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I meant I taught him. He definitely didn't teach me. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine it? Me, a rogue who doesn't know thieves can't. That is highly unlikely, statistically speaking. Anyway, stuff and things, here we are. No, Peaches, stay. Yes, you can play with Katie's Nightmare after. I just need you to stay. Okay, bike is all set. Helmet's on. Let's do this. Um, Lennon, you, you have to start up at Peach's head. Right. Uh, anybody seen a ladder? You gonna try that with a bicycle? Did you plan this out at all beyond use Peach's as a bike ramp? I mean, why would I have done that? I've put about as much planning this as I do for D&D on any given day. What? 
How? Yeah, it's really not that hard. You see, a lot of people who see live play shows like Critical Role or Relics and Rarities or other high production value shows assume that DMing a D&D game requires multiple hours of preparation each time to account for plot hooks, NPCs, settings, encounters, and everything else. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, we should say here that in the case of something like Critical Role, you're 100% right. Matt Mercer has said that he does about three hours of prep per session. But something to keep in mind is that they're doing a show for the purposes of being entertaining for the masses. They can't really afford to go in without preparation because they aren't just doing the game for themselves. They've got an audience of several million people expecting to derive some level of enjoyment from what they're doing. However, unless you're also producing a live play video or podcast show, three hours of preparation per session is probably overkill. Resources like Sly Flourish's Lazy Dungeon Master books go over in detail how to cut your prep time down to a reasonable amount of time by focusing on general concepts and boiling down what the game sessions will definitely need rather than trying to fit in everything you want or trying to account for every contingency. We won't rehash all of his strategies here, but we will say that he doesn't advocate doing no preparation at all. Some people will say the best games they've ever played were the result of having no plan going in, and while that may be true for an isolated session, establishing it as a pattern for DMing is risky and relies a lot on having a good understanding of D&D rules, a gifted improvisation, and a tolerant and accommodating group of players. It's better to have some notes, encounter ideas, monster stat blocks, and some NPC profiles ready to go, even if you don't have all the story beats outlined before you start. But let's talk about that isolated session. You're supposed to DM a game that night, but you never got your breaks at work to finalize your notes, a meeting ran late, your commute home was delayed by a wandering herd of turkeys, and this is the one week every player decides they're actually going to show up early for the session. So you stumble in the door and see a bunch of role-playing enthusiasts sitting at the table, character sheet in front of them, pizza in one hand, d20 in the other, and expectant smiles on their faces. Now, collapsing to the floor in a heap of tears and having a nervous breakdown is an option here that will get you off the hook, but it may not solve the problem. There are a bunch of people who want to play D&D, so now one of the players may suddenly find themselves in the role of DM with just as much prep as the gibbering mess in the other room had. Point is, assuming the group don't decide to just cancel the session, someone is going to have to DM cold with barely any notes. It is very possible to still have a good session in this scenario, but a certain amount of crisis management has to occur, and some of it's universal. First of all, we're going to turn the normal advice on its head. Talk to your players. Reasonable people, even those who have never DM'd, should be able to recognise that these are unusual circumstances and allow a few extra allowances to be made. You are, after all, a real person who does something other than D&D. Life happens. That said, it's not like you can expect them to wait for an hour and a half while you write or rewrite all of your notes, look up monsters, etc., so you're going to have to meet them halfway. Unfortunately, if you're not a real person or you do nothing but prepare and play D&D every waking hour of the day, then really you have no excuse and your players are well within their rights to shame you. Next order of business, what was supposed to be happening that evening? Because the answer to that question dictates your next steps. Boiled down simply, you have three options. Try to do what you were going to do anyway, possibly with stripped down or modified circumstances. Take the Monty Python approach and do something completely different, or work out some sort of a hybrid. Picking up what you were going to do anyway is usually done when the group is in the middle of a long-running campaign, and within that campaign they were in the middle of a quest. 
a lot of DMs will end things on cliffhangers or on big reveals to ramp up player engagement, and players will be expecting some sort of payoff. If it was right before a battle, that may be the easiest. Even if you can't remember exactly what enemies you chose before, you can simply and quickly build another encounter of appropriate level using something like D&D Beyond or Cobalt Fight Club. The setting should be something in collective memory, but we'll also take this opportunity to reinforce the wisdom of having someone other than the DM take notes during the sessions. If someone wrote down, we were in a junction in the sewers underwater deep, that's enough for the DM to set the scene. Similarly, if the characters were wandering around in a dungeon and you don't have your map handy, find another map online that has geomorphs that make sense for the rest of the dungeon and quickly generate a few encounters. If it was more of a social situation and you don't have your notes but you remember the overall path of the campaign, you can try to improvise it. A lot of social encounters are fluid anyway, so all you need to do is come up with key NPCs that are around and what their motivations and goals are. You may not even need stat blocks for them, just have numbers for their persuasion, insight, and deception skills, and values for their wisdom, intelligence, and charisma saves, and you should be able to account for most roles you'll need to do, assuming combat doesn't break out. In both of those scenarios, you may need to retroactively edit your campaign notes, and some NPCs' names may need to change, but again, if your players are aware that you're winging it, they're less likely to be shocked. Side note, if you're running an official adventure like Tomb of Annihilation or Waterdeep Dragon Heist, this scenario is a good argument for having a spare physical copy of the adventure within the group. That way, if the DM misplaces their copy or D&D Beyond is unavailable for whatever reason, you still have access to the module and most of your preparation problems are solved. Now, if you were in the middle of a campaign but not in the middle of a quest, this is a good opportunity for the hybrid approach. The players can use their characters and even the same setting, but instead of whatever was planned, they get involved in whatever one-shot or short adventure you managed to look up or make in the 15 minutes you bought yourself by explaining that you needed a little bit of extra prep time. You'll probably need to reskin a few things like the location names or maybe some of the monsters, but then again, if you're running a campaign in the Forgotten Realms, you could probably even just skip that entirely. This is probably the easiest option where you're still playing because there's barely any prep needed on either side of the screen. All the players are still using the characters that they're used to, and the DM has a pre-made adventure that they might only need to skim over the once. It is better to fully read adventures before running them for your party, but again, this is why you talk to your players and explain that the session is something exciting and different, and part of the excitement is the players giving you a few minutes to read up here and there when they are invariably presented with options A, B, and C, but decide on option Q. It should be noted though that if you're comfortable enough with the system and or if you're planning an adventure where the character and NPC stats are less critical, it may be possible to make up an adventure in the campaign universe instead of reskinning a released one. However, again, that should only realistically be attempted if you think you can pull something convincing together in about 15 minutes or so. Option number three is similar to the previous option in that the DM is probably either finding or very quickly building an adventure for the characters to run, and it's probably a one-shot, but they're making no attempt to link it to the existing campaign world. This is probably the route many groups will have to go if they're running certain published adventures and don't have access to the sourcebook, for example if the characters are deep in Avernus or in the middle of Acerax's tomb. The big thing with this approach is that the players will need to use different characters. That can be quite a time sink itself, particularly if the players are not familiar with or not invested in making characters. Most groups have at least one or two players that put together an absolute menagerie of characters just for the exercise, but there are others who agonize over putting a character together and breathe a sigh of relief once the campaign starts and they don't have to worry about it anymore. An easy solution to that is to either find a pre-made adventure that includes pre-made characters, such as the rolled and told resource, 
or find a website such as fastcharacter.com that can generate fully formed characters with minimal input. As long as the player isn't picky about specifics, you can very quickly generate a character for any player and get people ready to play without all the time and energy that a normal Session Zero involves. Some coaching may be necessary if players get caught up on crafting a complex build or insist on overemphasizing character backstories, though. Remind them that this is a one-shot, so chances of these characters developing a story arc or even needing to be alive after the adventure finishes isn't something they need to worry about. Playing a D&D game in the remaining time is. In several scenarios here, we mentioned grabbing pre-made adventures. If you don't have a library of them already, then the DM's Guild is an excellent place to start, but other resources such as Cobalt Press or the One Page Dungeon publication can provide you with a wide variety of quick and easy adventures to grab if you're stuck in one of the panic situations we mentioned. The DM's Guild in particular even has categories where authors can link their adventures to existing resources, so if you're in the middle of a campaign, you can specifically search for adventures related to whatever it is that you're currently playing. Just make sure to pay attention to the target levels for the adventures. You don't suddenly want to have the characters facing an adventure meant for characters that are actually twice their level. Unless your solution to not prepping is to call Katie in to substitute. That sounds suspiciously like the voice of experience. I don't know what you're talking about. Can you just levitate him up there so we can get this over with? Fine. Mount up. Set. And up to the head. And oh boy. No, no, Peach's tail up. Up. Yeah, she flattened it out. Well, at least he ended up in the right place. I didn't even think it was possible to go straight from the back door into the scrying pool room. I don't think straight lines came into it at all. Sweet, I think that's enough. We don't want to overload people, obviously. Um, you want to help me finish this off? That would represent an inefficient utilization of my capacity and resources. Okay, what does that mean? <sighs> oh, damn, did I pass out again? Or or did was that just nod off? Did I have a nap? Yeah, okay then. Uh, d don't worry, don't worry about it, mate. Everything is sorted. Uh, we just need to, like, wrap the show up. Wait. Really? Oh, okay. And so this brings us to the end of the 225th entry into our chronicle. It also brings to us an issue that we need to share with all of you. As you may have noticed, in recent months, Wizards of the Coast has been a little slower to release content. When Heroes Rise started, Wizards' marketing strategy relied much on being constantly in the public eye. They had web shows and podcasts where designers were interviewed, upcoming content would be highlighted, and where minor spoilers would leak out all around the drops of actual content. We had fireside chats almost weekly, Dragon Plus at least once a month, and Unearthed Arcanas had a regular Tuesday drop schedule. That is no longer how Wizards operates. Their approach now seems to be more of a blitz, where tons of content will drop all at once, and then they go quiet for weeks or even months at a time. The reasons for that approach can be debated and discussed ad nauseum, but unfortunately what it means for us as a D&D podcast is that it's getting harder and harder to find content and continue producing a quality show on a weekly basis. There have been a few live play shows supported and highlighted by Wizards of the Coast, but that's never really been the type of content that we focused on, and so we don't feel it would make sense to do that now. For that reason, we're switching to fortnightly releases. You'll still get myself, Ostron, and Ryu, along with our guest hosts as needed, Rostro, the killer DM, and the mimic that I swear is around here somewhere, but every other week. Of course, if there's something like a major piece of news that simply can't wait, we'll probably do it as soon as possible. 
It's also possible that we'll use the off weeks to do some other types of content, particularly for our patrons, so stay tuned for more on that. We know that this is likely to come as a disappointment to you, but please be assured this decision is born out of a desire to produce a quality show. We assume you'd rather have us maintain our standards than compromise just for the sake of getting an episode out that week. If you have any questions or concerns, of course, feel free to submit them as feedback, message us directly, join us on the Discord. And given that, we'll be back with our 226th entry on October 5th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? As a reminder from last week's, our community questions were, what's your story when the biggest enemy your character faced was gravity? Was it a nice, gentle conclusion or a hard stop at the end? And are you familiar with Advanced 5th Edition? Have you played in the Amethyst setting before? Any stories from those that you'd like to share? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at heroesrisednd. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. And make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. If you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favorite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy. And be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout and save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you live recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super-secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. But if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too! Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow. And that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our social media mage Ray Ray, our Conjuration Cabal Blood Lake Indigo Spectre and Gath Memvar, and our audio alchemists Mikey, Bramwin, and Tomasthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sabi, Rat Queen, Amber Squirrel Craning, Strife, Cauldron, Daft Kronk, The Record Spinning Economy, The Shadow known only as Azarel, and That One Guy. Vince Fept, for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show, be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamp.com and Lowe of Lowe's Layer, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Layer and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Layer. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. 